Hey, Prime members, you can listen to Ion Travel with Peter Greenberg, that's me, ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the app today. This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you can have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. This episode is brought in part to you by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like James Patterson's first audio-only thriller, The Coldest Case. Experience stories like never before, where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. This episode of Travel Today with Peter Greenberg is brought to you by audible.com, a leading provider of spoken audio information and entertainment. Listen to audiobooks whenever and wherever you want. Sign up today at www.audiblepodcast.com slash travel today to get a free audiobook and 30-day trial. It's time for Peter Greenberg Worldwide with America's number one travel news journalist. And now, the man who travels over 400,000 miles each year, your travel detective, Peter Greenberg. Hi, everybody. Peter Greenberg here, and welcome to the podcast that's done from a different location around the world every single week. One day Canada, the next day Thailand, then New York, London. You just never know. This week we come to you from the Ama Christina on the River, right here in Amsterdam in the Netherlands. Joining me now, an old friend of the show. I can actually call him a regular on the show now. Um, And the reason why we're actually here in Amsterdam, the chairman and CEO of Virtuoso, Matthew Upchurch. How are you, sir? Hey, Peter. Uh, I like like the Barry White voice. Well, (laughs) it's been a fun cruise. (laughs) (laughs) Well, tell us what we're actually doing here on these ships. Well, it's it's an industry first. Uh, What we were able to do is we have this annual meeting that obviously you've been to many times. And this year we did a first and we had a collaboration between seven different river cruise uh, brands that all came together. And over the last four days... Uh, we've been on the Rhine, and we've had the ability to dine around and go to all the different ships and lunches and dinners, and, and everybody's been able to see all these amazing river ships that, you know, it's it's the quality is, is unbelievable. And so... But it, let me just back up for <clears> a second, because last year you were mm-hmm, in Vancouver, mm-hmm. right? This is something, you do two big meetings a year. Mm-hmm. I mean, the big meetings, yep. right? You do the symposium, which happens in the spring. Which is this one, yeah. Right? And then you do the big crazy one, the, the nutty one that we actually go to in, in Las Vegas, 
which is like speed dating on steroids. It's it's every travel advisor, every supplier, four thousand meeting. Uh, no, four thousand people. Six thousand now. Oh, excuse me. Sorry. <laughs> Six thousand people. How many different meetings? Uh, nearly four hundred thousand. In like a six-day period? In, yeah, five days. Unbelievable. And 103 countries represented. Unreal. Yeah. So, but this symposium uh, basically celebrated, if you will, the explosion in river cruising. Yeah, and I mean, our, uh, you know, the, this river cruising has just become such an amazing uh, category in travel. And, uh, you know, once again, by being here, all of our advisors have been able to see all these different products, the nuances. Um, and it's it's an incredible celebration of creativity because a river cruise ship, literally the external dimensions are all the same because of, they've got to fit in the locks. They've got it's, and so to see what they're able to do inside with the different designs, the different way they do it is 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 quite amazing. To me, I've always been amazed, and and finally some of the airlines figured this out. When the airlines tried to figure out how they could improve their product, they they hired naval architects. Mm -hmm. Forget a aviation guys. Right. They went right to the naval because they have to actually work with the space they're given. They they don't they can't mess around. Absolutely. And and again, the other thing that I love about this is um, just one of the, one of my favorite things about river cruising is that yesterday I had lunch on another ship, and I literally watched my ship sail away, <laughs> and. I, no worries. I've had that happen a lot, but by accident. Yeah. No worries. Yeah. It was on purpose, and yeah. I was able to get a cab and, and catch up with the ship because it's a 45-minute cab ride. So literally, <laughs> that's, that is one of the things about river cruising, I think, that is so distinct, is that because you look at these itineraries, and people, we have a lot of clients that, that will you know, say, okay, well, you know what, I'm going to go have lunch over here, and then I'll catch up with the ship in another port because the, the distances are not that great. And the speed is not that great. Well, exactly, and yeah. so therefore, being able to do it by road... And so there, to me, there's, there's really uh, two major categories of clients that really enjoy this. One are the, the, the category of client that really loves the immersive experience, being on the ship, you know, doing all the incredible tours that they have. But then you also have another category that's, that's less um, well-known, which is the one that really uses the ship as this amazing, you know, floating, you know, hotel. And then they do all these independent things, right, where they... You know, in fact, we were joking last night at dinner that, that we're going to start looking at some of these itineraries and say between the port of embarkation and where we go, there are 18 Michelin stars, you know, and going off and having a foodie experience or things like that. So it's, the flexibility is just fantastic. And the thing is, the number of options. Yeah. I mean, are there any rivers other than water level issues? Are there any rivers that they're not on right now? No, and I, and then even I think and 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 again, and but the quality too is what's amazing. So there's a lot of of innovation. Um, obviously, there are all these different rivers around the world. Um, you know, Ama also, for example, has the Mekong is very 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 uh, popular. So it's it's a great category. I'm amazed uh, when I see how many ships are being built, how many ships are being launched, um, and yet when you think of the routes that they're traveling on. You're going on routes where commerce started, mm. where where villages were there. Mm -hmm. They're still there. They're not, you know, the thing that I hate the most is being stuck on a tour bus somewhere. And that you don't have that experience on a riverboat. Exactly. Where, and, and I think you make a really good point. I mean, if you look at some, so much of how society and, you know, cities where, you know, the rivers were the, you know, the artery, right? And, and that's another, I think that's another really cool part about river cruising is, as we look out the window here, yes, we're we're we are having this this 
visitor experience, but you feel like you're in the heart of, of the pulse of a city, right? So here we are in Amsterdam and we were in Rotterdam yesterday and, and you don't, you know, you feel like you're part of the community and you're part of the culture. By the way, you mentioned Rotterdam yesterday. Every time I go to Rotterdam, I make a pilgrimage to the Hotel New York. The Hotel New York is still there. It dates back more than a century. It was the hotel where all the immigrants went to the night before they got on those Holland America ships and cruised to the New World, to Ellis Island. And they've kept it just the way it was. Uh, I mean, it's unbelievable. And, and, you know, and, the, and the Rotterdam, the, the last Rotterdam on Holland America, after its final cruise, mm-hmm. is now home ported in Rotterdam, and it's now a hotel. You know, Peter, I've quit trying to keep up with your encyclopedic knowledge of travel. No, <laughs> no, but I mean, it's it's truly an experience to, because the history is it right is there. It is amazing. Yeah, absolutely. You know, absolutely. And, and, and that's the beauty of Amsterdam because the history is there it's in front of you, and it's walkable. Or if you know most of the people in Amsterdam, it's bikeable. Isn't that, isn't that cool? I mean, here are yeah. the bikes, and, and it's just, and of course, but all the but all bikes the, all, do not stop for for well. And I'm just saying, all the locals <laughs> say, you, you know, you know, when somebody is not a local if they're wearing a helmet. So, you know, <laughs> that's that's the thing here in Amsterdam. I mean, there there the thing about Amsterdam, I believe there are, I think, 3.4 bikes per person. It's, I mean, it, it's a bicycle yeah, culture. Absolutely, I know, and it's and it's it's a very fun place. The people who are operating the river cruises. Mm-hmm. I mean, yes, they're constrained by the size of the ship. Mm-hmm. They can't get any bigger. They can't get. Any, they certainly can't get any wider. Mm-hmm. They've got to work with what they've got. Mm-hmm. But they're building new ships all the time. Um, the real question is, how big can this grow? Well, I mean, first of all, if you look at the overall, if you take all the river cruising, you know, I mean, and you look at that capacity, it still is tiny compared to ocean cruising. So, right. I mean, for example, on this ship, mm-hmm. maybe a hundred cabins, mm-hmm. maybe. Yeah. And, 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 yeah, I think, and yeah, I think you could fill, you know, you, I think that, uh, well, actually, I think uh, a lifeboat on Royal Caribbean fits more people than that. <laughs> so, right? Right. So, but, it, but I think it's, again, it's, it's, it's interesting. But, you know, that also brings me back to something. I love it when you open the show about the how to give back in the community and yeah. all that. Because I do think that, that we all have a responsibility. And I think, um, you know, the whole sustainability of tourism it's not only environmental, it's about, you know, giving back to the community, making things like that. So I think, again, I think river cruising particularly really immerses you in the in the destinations and allows you to really be part of it because you're ashore every single day. You have the flexibility to do what you want. Um, and, and again, uh, you know, we, we have clients that will say, you know, the food here is amazing. But we're going to go, you know, have dinner. Like I said yesterday, you know, we're going to have dinner somewhere and come back to the ship. Yeah, exactly. When we were in in Arnhem, uh, you know, such great history there, going back to World War II and World War One. But, but such great history there. You're just walking the streets. Mm-hmm. We found a Waffle House mm-hmm. that was so dangerous. I mean, you needed a stretcher to get back to the ship. Toto. We're not in Kansas anymore. Oh, 
every time I always come to Amsterdam and everywhere I go, I'm, you know, I, I only have to walk about four feet and I'm surrounded by history. Uh, you, don't, you, know, you don't have to do, just look up or around, you look down. It's everywhere. And joining me now, uh, historian Bert Whiskey, who, uh, or Bert Whiskey. Bert. I got it right, didn't I? Yeah, um, I mean, what, what's amazing to me, and, and, and we were talking off, off air about me going down to the Hotel New York in Rotterdam and being surrounded by, which we sailed in on, on one of the riverboats, right? I mean, it's just, it's in your face. It's great. Yeah. I mean, that Hotel New York experience where all the immigrants used to go before on the old Holland America ships to come to the New World in Ellis Island. Yeah, it's part of your story. Our history is your history as well in many respects. And if you go to Rotterdam, for example, the other town in the Netherlands, and you are inside and you see all the individual stories and the pictures of those people, went to all of them went to uh, Ellis Island. Yeah. And they went then and spread throughout the United States. And the Constitution connection? Oh, yes, absolutely. We had our Dutch revolt in the 17th century, which, uh, of which the outcome was the Dutch Republic, the most sophisticated society of the day. And it started with a so-called declaration of abjuration, where we said, we are fed up with our ruler. Go away. You are, you are the Spanish king. You tax us. We don't like that. And uh, Thomas Jefferson was very much inspired by this document, and another document as well, yes. The, uh, the so document. did he lift liberally from that document? <laughs> he read both those documents. I don't know where he lived on this, but he read those documents. Yeah. Yes. yeah. And that we now have the Declaration of Independence. Um, yes, and it has the same format as the Dutch Declaration of Abjuration. He starts to complain <laughs> about <laughs> the Spanish king and you, British king, uh, George III. It's, al it's always a complaint. And, yeah. and you're originally from Rotterdam. I am originally from Rotterdam, so it's a big step to go to Amsterdam, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> you have no idea. <laughs> but, you know, when we, when we talk about Amsterdam today versus, let's say, 25 years ago, 25 years ago, Amsterdam, to me, was a messy city. It, it was, was yeah. it was disorganized. It was confused. It didn't know where it was going. Uh, there, there was no leadership, um, right? Yes, you're absolutely right. Uh, Twenty-five years ago, you you would stumble over the junkies in Amsterdam, for example, and the Zeedijk. It's the very heart of the city. Ah, uh, well. But uh, what what turned it around? I think the mentality of the Dutch. We have uh, is this this dual Amsterdam, and you have to do something about. It. You have to manage it. Yes, and you have to invest. And you have to invest into social housing projects, for example, which is very uh, extraordinary in Europe. If you go to Paris, it's a very different story if you go out in the, the neighborhoods, in the banlieue, yes. And the Dutch have, a, I would say, an approach that they want to invest in their cities into people as well and in order to upgrade and to change, uh, adapt to a changing world. And, yet, you know, here we are on the river, yeah. right? This is a city built on the river. It is. Yeah, Amsterdam. I mean, the Netherlands built the on Netherlands, the river. One third of the Netherlands is still below sea level, so it sort of stands to reason why you would see that country or this country on a riverboat. Uh, absolutely, it's. It, it, I would say it's the best perspective. If you go on the riverboat through the country, yes, especially this uh, very month, the next month with the tulips and everything, and also the the cities in the Netherlands, Amsterdam, the canal boats. It's. Uh, I do it myself. I'm a local. I do it myself. And what's the biggest, when you do it yourself, right, whether it's on a, a smaller boat or, or a riverboat like this, what's the biggest surprise for you? The, the uh, diversity of perspectives, the, the different looks, the, the, uh, the, the, the trends of the past that you see in the facades and the gables of the, of the town, and the people riding their bikes on the bridge, 
Yes, you see him crossing from one part of the to the other part, and it's it's a lively, th it's a thriving town. It's not just history. It's it's you are here in a very vivid environment with a beautiful legacy. For me, you know, so much of travel, if it's successful travel, is storytelling. Absolutely. And yeah. you know, and if you're going down the river at a slow pace, and you're stopping along the banks at these small towns. Those are all stories waiting to be told. Uh, you are right, absolutely, yeah. yeah. And many of the towns in the Netherlands have the same format, the same plan. You, you see a great market in the middle, and you, you can think of all those people that went there, that they had their businesses, that they had their legal uh, issues, that had their love affairs and everything, and it's there, and you can see it, and you can experience it here in Amsterdam or in the other towns as well. Like, for example, Harlem, the original Harlem, in the, it's in the Netherlands, it's 12 miles from Amsterdam. So it's manageable. Yeah. It's, all, it's a manageable distance. It's in the DNA of the Dutch to manage the environment. <laughs> yeah. How could we survive otherwise? Exactly. And then the windmills. Yeah, the powerhouses of the 17th century. Yes, nowadays we, uh, we are hoping for the quantum uh, energy and everything. But it starts, of course, uh, in the Netherlands with the windmill. Yeah. And you had to have them because of the sea level. You had to, otherwise you would have uh, to introduce slaves or horses whatsoever, and all the Dutch were free people in the 17th century. So you needed another kind of energy, yeah, the windmill. <laughs> innovation, it's all, all about innovation in the Netherlands. We have to adapt always. But even though you're adapting, you go on a river cruise, you see things that just don't change too. Yes, luckily. So I would say yes, because uh, if you're an American, for example, you come to the Netherlands... You Not one of those. <laughs> Sorry. Well, they're very welcome, I can okay, assure you. Yeah. You're very welcome in the Netherlands. And uh, I love to have all these American guests. Um, you want to show where you're from, yes? And uh, it's, uh, it's amazing to Americans, because your country is quite young, yeah? And then you see all these older European towns, and you might have this idea that it's old stuff, but it's not. Because Amsterdam is a living city, and uh, it shows, yeah. Yep, and all along the river. It's everywhere, the water, yes. And I, it's now uh, March, almost April. One month ago, we were still skating around like Hans Brinker. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I get it. You remember the movie. Uh, oh, yeah? yes, I do. <laughs> I'm, yes, I do, sadly, but I do, yes. <laughs> Bert was historian right here in, in Amsterdam. And you'll go back on the river right away. I know you will. I will. On my bike first. Yeah, well, you, well, you live in Amsterdam. You have to I have do. a bike. I have a bi two bikes. <laughs> there again. Everybody's got more than one bike. Hello? Uh, this is your captain speaking. There is absolutely no cause for alarm. Get your motor running. Head out on the highway. Looking for I'm always a big fan of asking the locals, and my next guest is local, um, and she's an expat, and in fact, she's the editor of I Am Expat. Her name is Mina Solanke. How are you? Hi, I'm very good, thank you. You? Good. Now, I was a little confused because you were born in Boston. Mm-hmm. Which yes. Boston? I was born in Boston, England. Let's get it straight. That's the first one. You guys just took our name, so... Okay, thanks for sharing. This. Okay. 
But then what brought you to Amsterdam? Well, actually, I first started off in Groningen. So I studied um, an exchange year there. Where is there? That's in the north of the Netherlands, so the very north of the Netherlands. Actually, the province saying is, er gaat niets boven Groningen. Literally, there's nothing above Groningen. There isn't. <laughs> and I studied a master's there and an exchange year. And a then master's I, in what? Uh, European linguistics. So you're a mistranslator. Yeah, I'm a mistranslator and writer. And then I got a job in Amsterdam. So I was like, yes, off to the big city. And here you are. And here I am still today. What's the attraction for you to Amsterdam? I think the fact that it's just so big and diverse. I mean, you've got even the, the, the parts of the city, so west, north, east, or even like a town, actually. So they're so big and so diverse. Again, different people you can meet. And there's always something to do. Do you own a bicycle? I own actually two. I know it. See? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's a biking city. Definitely. I, I would much prefer to bike than use the bus or anything else. Uh, I always bike to work. I think it's seven and a half kilometers, which I've gotten down to 20 minutes or 23. So I'm pretty pl- proud of myself. You're in a groove. Yes. You're in the groove. You need to get faster. <laughs> when you talk about diversity, you know, in all the years I've been coming to Amsterdam, and by the way, on, on the river cruise ships, they talk about it as well because it's where are we going to go eat? Where are we going to go? Because there's so many. And I go back to the days of a restaurant called Dynasty, mm-hmm. right, with the with sort of Indonesian, Asian cuisine, right? But then there's so many other places to go, um, which didn't used to be that way. But now it's booming, out mm-hmm. of control, right? Yeah, definitely. There's there's so many places to eat. I mean, I really like to eat uh, different cultures, food as well. So there's a place I like to go in West, and it's called Abyssinia, and I think it's Ethiopian food. I mean, when I, I think Amsterdam, I always think Ethiopian food. No, <laughs> no, but you can do that. Yeah, you can get anything here. I mean, just all sorts of different cultural food. Also typical Dutch, you know, your stompot, uh, pannenkoeken. Wait, 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 slow down. <laughs> what is that called? Stomp? Stompot. Which is? Which is mashed potatoes uh, with different vegetables in it. Depends what kind you get. And do you like that? I do, actually. I don't like the sausage in it, but I do like uh, mashed potatoes. Okay, and what was the other dish you mentioned? Pannenkoeken, pancakes. Ah. Dutch pancakes. And the waffles. And waffles, yeah. I do love waffles. I'm a bit of a sweet tooth, so... Uh, can't resist those. I made the mistake of ordering a large. That was out of control. Mm, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I needed a nap after that. After dinner dip. Yeah, yeah. no kidding. Um, but the point is, it's a very, even though you have a bicycle, it's a walkable city too. Yep, that's very true. You can walk everywhere as well. Takes you a little bit longer, but. All right, but now do you, cons- you still consider yourself an expat? I do and I don't because I can speak Dutch as well, so I, I can sort of fit in and read the the letters the gemeente the municipality sends me. But I also have a lot of expat friends, and where I work at I'm expat. The whole office is expats, so I also fit into that sort of community as well. I mean, in a way, you have a sort of a dream job. People would love to say, "Gee, I'd like to be able to live overseas," right? Mm-hmm. Um, what are the pitfalls, though? I mean, Amsterdam is not an inexpensive city. No, that is definitely one of the pitfalls. I think, well, if you compare it to London, I would say it's probably around the same price, slightly cheaper than Which, London. Well, perhaps. that's not saying much. That's yeah, expen- yeah, but it is very expensive. I mean, that was one of the things that shocked me when I came to live here in Amsterdam, um, in the north of the the uh, country. Uh, it's a lot cheaper. So I think the rent was probably half what I pay now for twice the amount of room. But 
you, you adjust to the space that you're given. That's very true, yeah. I can fit everything in my small room. <laughs> Other than the idea that every time I walk down the street in Amsterdam, I'm getting a contact high. Yeah, it happens, right? Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah. But the point is, there are so many little nooks and crannies here. There's so many little neighborhoods, places to go. But one of the things that, you know, other than the waffles, other than the potato dishes, you like the tea pancakes. I do. I love pancakes. So I, there's a place I know, and I don't think many people know about it as well. Cause not many people venture much further than the sort of city ring. Uh, there's a place if you walk along uh, in the Amsterdam forest, it's called Boerderij uh, Meersicht, and there's a little petting zoo there and a place where you can eat pancakes. Wait a minute, it's a petting zoo and pancakes? Yeah. <laughs> okay. I think it's a perfect combination, little goats and getting to eat amazing pancakes there. And But why are they called tea pancakes? Tea pancakes? Yeah. But... They put something in it. I mean, what, what do they actually put in those pancakes? Uh, well, they don't put tea, but uh, they're sort of a pancake. And then what they do is they actually put the filling inside it. So yeah. if you get like a cheese pancake or a cheese and ham, the filling is actually they put first a layer of pancake, then they put that in it, and then they put another thin layer of pancake on it and then cook it. So when you cut into it, you get like the pancakey, cheesy oozing out. Perfect. <laughs> the ooze factor. Mm -hmm. The ooze factor is spot on. And what about uh, coffee and coconuts? That is one of my favorite places to go for breakfast or lunch, especially in the weekends. You, you have a sweet tooth, don't you? I really, really do, but they have the best, I mean, the best avocado scrambled eggs. They're just amazing. They've got feta cheese and those special purpley olives on it as well. It's just delicious. Now, I've gone over to the conservatorium, the hotel there, mm -hmm. over by the Van Gogh Museum. Yes. And the guy there, the chef there, makes the most amazing tapioca pudding. I, um, that's my tip for you. I'm not really sure I'm going to like tapioca, but... Have you ever <laughs> tried it? No, but it looks really runny. <laughs> <laughs> Tastes so good. I'll, I'll try it. I'll try it. I'll put it on my will, list. Will you do that just for me? I will do it just for you. Okay, good. Because it's worth it, I'm telling you. Okay. What's the one neighborhood in Amsterdam that people don't normally know that you hang out at? West. Why? I think it's more sort of... It's very away from the city centre. I mean, I live in the south... So I usually go to West just because they've got really an, a lot of nice shops there and a lot of places to eat. I mean, on the Overtome, the street there, there's so many different restaurants. I mean, obviously, it's not in the city centre, so I don't think people generally tend to travel out as much. But uh, I'd say it's one of the really nice neighbourhoods and also up and coming as well. And from where we are right now, it's not that far away. Everything's manageable here. Exactly. I mean, I'm sure it's only like 10, 15 minutes biking, 20, 25 minutes walking, probably. I judge most cities by their food. I do definitely like the Albert Gautzmarkt. I have to say that's a... Give me that name again. Albert... And where is that? It's the famous street market if you're on the tram. I think it's tram 16 or 24. Uh, just you guys. <laughs> and uh, it's in the pipe. So it's in the south part of uh, the city. I think they have a market on Saturdays. And you can, you can get food, you can get shoes. I like to buy my plants from this market as well. They even have plants. So uh, I think you can get pretty much anything there and all the fresh fish and cheese and everything. Now, the other thing about Amsterdam, which, you know, you can't say about many U.S. cities, you got it's a great hub for trains. You can go anywhere. 
That's true. There's, there's, there are so many trains, and there's a lot of train stations here. I think that shocked me as well. You've got South, uh, Ray, um, uh, I'm sure you've probably got one in North everywhere, the Central Station, the Sloterdijk. You can get to any part of the city on the train as well. See, what the Dutch have done, you know, you land at Schiphol, mm-hmm. and you're at the train station. Yep. I mean, that's it. You, you don't have to go very far to go anywhere you want to go. Exactly. It's perfect. I know. So if people who want to go see Amsterdam, buy your URL pass in the States before you come over. And then when you get here, when you're ready to go, you can even go right when you get out of the airport, you're gone. It's the way to do it. Exactly. It's just super fast to get anywhere. When all of your friends from Boston, England, <laughs> uh, come to visit you, right? What's the one thing that surprises them the most about Amsterdam? I think how clean it is. I think that's definitely been said to me before, that the streets are very clean. I mean, they, they spend obviously a lot of money on having uh, people clean the streets every day, and it's just it's a very clean city. I think that's what surprises them most. And then obviously the, the amount of people you see, and the amount of different cultures and, and uh, people from different races and breeds, everything. And they don't ask you to take them to the red light district? They do, they do. <laughs> I think my sister asked me to take her there, and then we were there for one second, and then we were like, well, let's get out. Leave. <laughs> yeah, exactly. People go for once, and they go, okay, I've done it. I don't have to go back. Exactly. Exactly. But if you do go, bring a sense of humor. Exactly, and, and don't take pictures. Yeah, why not? <laughs> Tell me why. You're not allowed. They, they don't like it. <laughs> they don't like it? No, no, not at all. Not a place for selfies. No, exactly. No. Where are the wagons? The wagon is too slow. Can't you ride? It's not that he can't ride. How is it you put it home? They're dangerous at both ends and crafty in the middle. Why would I want anything with a mind of its own bobbing about between my legs? Audible.com has more than 150,000 titles and virtually every genre. So check it out for yourself. Sign up today at www.audiblepodcast.com slash travel today to get a free audiobook and 30-day trial. Every time you come to Amsterdam, every time I come to Amsterdam, there are certain places you go back to, there are certain places you revisit uh, that you can't get enough of. And of course, there's that famous quote that if you don't remember the past, you're doomed to repeat it. And uh, joining me now is somebody who knows a lot about the past, who's coming from, for the last 10 years, the Anne Frank House here in Amsterdam, uh, Gertrude Brook. How are you, sir? I'm fine. Thank you very much. You know, people don't, I mean, I have to remind people that that house has been opened for 58 years now. It's been open since 1960. May 3, 1960. That's, yeah. that's almost 85, 58 yeah. years. I mean... I, you know, I'm one of those baby boomers who grew up in the 50s learning about Anne Frank. We, we read about it in school. We read about her story and her diary. And then, of course, there was the movie, right? The Diary of Anne Frank. Um, but putting things in context is, is key, to be able to come visit that house and, and see how small, I mean, when you think about it, right? Yes. What is the biggest story that you want to tell when people come to visit there? that they may think they know, but they don't really know? The, the story in general, um, the, the persecution of the, of the Jewish population of the Netherlands and of, of occupied Europe at the time, that, that is the outline 
of the story, of course, the hiding of Anne Frank and her family and and, and the people and who helped and the people who helped and the others that hid with them. So eight people hiding altogether, and about six people trying to help them. Um, that is the outline of the story that everybody knows f from the diary, as yourself. And for me, as a researcher, there's of course more to that story because. If you help people under those circumstances how, circumstances, how do you do that? How do you organize things? Uh, what happens in the surrounding area? What you have to be careful of? Uh, what is a threat or a danger or what is safe to do? The consequences. So the, the, con the possible consequences and what happens in the outside world that you can't control. And all that sort of detail is for me as a researcher uh, a main point of interest and that's where I... Uh, direct my focus on. I mean, it's one thing to look at Amsterdam now. It's another thing to try to transport yourself, if you will, to the way it was and the yeah. world in which she lived. Yes, which was, of course, the same city. The inner, the inner city didn't change that much, but it was a completely different world. Uh, um, she lived there with her family since 1933, so those were relatively normal circumstances, although they were compelled to leave uh, Germany, where they all came from but uh, they were overtaken by history I guess when in 1940 uh, um, German troops occupied the Netherlands as well and how old was she when she died 15 wow 15 yes and how many years was she hiding out for 25 months so from May 1940 the the Netherlands were occupied by the Germans and persecution of the Jewish population started gradually but in the summer of 1942, serious deportations uh, started. So that's when the family uh, decided to hide out in a part of the corporate building where Anne Frank's father had his businesses running. And this building you've maintained almost in the same condition that it was in. Uh, in the 1950s, it was, it was in a bad shape. It, 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 almost, it almost collapsed. It almost collapsed, yes. It was derelict, and it was on the nomination to be pulled down together with the rest of the block, in fact. Um, but something like pu public outcry uh, uh, and with help of the municipality and all sorts of, uh, of forces in society, uh, the building was saved and, and restored. So for people to visit and see under what conditions they lived and to serve as a meeting point for, that was Otto Frank's strong wish for youngsters from all over the world to meet and get to know each other because he believed that that could prevent conflict. You know, what's interesting to me is, first of all, it's still, I hate to use the word popular, but it is still a very popular tourist destination. It is. It's, it, you have to get a ticket. It's not easy to get in. I mean, you, it, people, it's because it's such a small place. I mean, when you walk right. in, that sense of confinement is overwhelming. Yes, and that was the whole idea, I think, of Otto Frank when he opened it, uh, uh, when he wanted opened and restored as it, as it was for the public. Uh, there's now there's 1.2 million visitors every year to this so one small house to this one small house and i always wonder what a bricklayer or a or a carpenter in the 17th century would say if you could tell him that that particular building would be visited by that number of people um it is yeah it's it's hard to manage uh, uh, a massive amount of people like that so there the, the, the logistics of of organizing all these visitors is, of course uh, it's a massive operation. We're talking to Gertrude Burke, 
uh, Gertrude Brooke That's right. uh, from the Anne Frank House. I- I'll tell you what I was left with, and, and I don't think I'm alone in this. You look at what's there, and you learn the story, and the question that you almost immediately ask is, what would you have done? That's right. Right? That's right. That's one of the most important questions, I think, in every time, in, in ours and in that time as well. I mean, you know, it's, I remember going to Nagasaki in Japan, the site of a, of a horrific atomic bomb blast at the end of World War II. Every Japanese school child is required to go visit the Nagasaki Memorial because they want them to learn from a very early age what happened here so that they realize that it should never happen again. I'm assuming the same lessons are learned here. Well, let, let's hope so. Um, it, of course, uh, one of the messages that you want to convey is that uh, uh, is the seriousness of what has happened at that time, and that we should do what's in our possibility to uh, to prevent any repetition. And of course, you're also left with another word that starts with an H and ends with an E. It's four letters. It's hope. Yes, that's correct. Right. It's not just despair. It's hope. It's what people can do if, if when they get together. Yes, there is a, a, a sense of hope that you can derive from the diary that Anne Frank wrote during her hi, hi, hiding period as well. Exactly. An amazing story that comes to life. 1.2 million visitors a year get a ticket and go. Should there be a rapid change in cabin pressure, oxygen masks will automatically drop from the compartment above your seat free of charge. And to start the flow of oxygen, pay your flight attendant $75.63. Now, I mentioned we're on the Ama Christina, and um, I'm pleased to be joined by the godmother of that ship, as well as the co-owner of the Amma Waterways. How many ships do you have now? We have 20 now, Peter, and welcome to the beautiful Amma Christina. <laughs> Thank you, Kristen Karst, uh, yourself. Uh, we've just participated, as we heard earlier when we are talking to Matthew Upchurch, uh, on this virtual symposium, which was really a first, where you had six or seven ships all together, all going to the same place, all with different passengers and different, but they all were together, right? going down the river, and for many of them, uh, as expert as they are, it was really their first time. It was, and that, that's why it was so special. Uh, first time to come here to Amsterdam, to come on board seven different river cruise ships, it's amazing. So they now become the experts. It's not just that they got to see one river cruise ship and the intimacy and the luxury of one, but now they got to see all the top players, at least in the North American market. Right. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we talk about the North American market, but to be, to be real about it, we're not in the North American market. We're in Europe. We are in Europe, and that's why it's so special. Europe is the continent that is really, uh, I would say, the number one when it comes to uh, travel. Uh, the culture is, is amazing. Everything is so so magic around the waterways. And uh, most of the river cruises actually are on the rivers in Europe. The Rhine, we are on here, of course, the Danube, the rivers in France, the Rhone, the Saone. Bordeaux, the Seine, uh, the Douro in Portugal, which really becomes extremely popular now. Portugal um, is over the top right now. Yeah, yeah, it definitely is. And it's so spectacular, the scenery there and the wine terraces. And 
I've done a lot of stuff on the Danube. I just have to let people know in the interest of full disclosure, it's not blue. <laughs> but it is fun to be on it. You can swim in the Danube. Did you notice? I didn't try, but now that you okay. don't, you can. You can even float on the Rhine now in Basel. So. Things are getting better. Mm-hmm. Now, you mentioned 20 ships. Mm-hmm. What was your first ship? First ship was Yamadachio. Um, so that was in 2006. We founded the company in 2002. But, of course, it took a while to build our first own ship. And uh, so Amadachi was a little bit smaller than what you have today on the Amma Christina. Uh, 148 guests altogether. Here we have uh, close to 160. And uh, you see the development in river cruising in the beginning, it was the French balconies. Where we were one of the first ones to build state Explain, explain a French balcony. French balcony is like a sliding glass door that you can completely open floor to ceiling. Yeah, so it's like when you go to Paris and you see all the houses there. So you see these windows, they are like French balconies. Um, But of course, people who came or our guests came a lot from the ocean industry and they requested balconies. Everybody wants a balcony. So everyone wants a balcony, no matter if you sit outside or not, but it's part of the deal today, right? And yet this is not a balcony that protrudes from the ship because you can't do that. You can't do that because you're going through locks. We go through locks, uh, but so what we have on this ship, for instance, is our signature twin or dual balconies, where we built, um, we have a French balcony on one side, then we have the real balcony. So Rudy, our president, he's also an architect, and he has really, really well designed this ship. Cabins are much more spacious than ever before. Less cabins, actually, with this, we have reduced the number to give more space to our guests. And to put things in perspective, you know, when you talk about a cruise ship, when you have a cruise ship that only has 160 passengers, by today's standards, that's still very small. It is still very, very small. And that's why, you know, Massey is actually one of them who says, Christine, larger cabins. And so this is one of our projects for 2019, the Amma Magna, our double white ship that can only cruise on the Danube because it will have the double width. And only the Danube has locks that have the double width from the locks on all the other rivers. But and, and by the way, you build these ships the way they build the Panama Canal ships. The actual space you have between the ship and the, and the lock can be as little inches. as six inches. Inches. Yeah. If you wanted to really, I mean, if you are on the balcony or so, you can reach out with your fingers, which you should not do at all. Can I tell you something? I did it. Did you, yeah. I did Hopefully it. Hopefully there was not a rusty nail there. No. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> but you can do it. It's, yeah, you it's, can it's, do it. It's yeah. amazing. Yeah, and it's a fascination actually for our guests to really watch when we go through the locks. Mm-hmm. How did you start? So I was born in Dresden in the former Eastern Germany. So, wow. Uh, wow. Yeah. But uh, even as a child, I always had... A, a city that was completely destroyed yeah, in World War II. Really, we built again beautiful, beautiful city. You know, the Semper Opera House, the Church of the Ladies. But So um, I always had some entrepreneurial spirit in my I mean, heart. I think it was my parents who formed it this way. They took us from an early age on to many, many trips. Of course, at this time, they all had to go to the East. But so I know pretty much all the former parts of the so- former Soviet Union, I can say, Russia now. Um, you, should, you should actually do a special uh, a land tour about the old former Soviet Union. People uh, would love it. B- people would definitely love it. And what I see today with our river cruises, for instance, the country of Romania uh, comes up so much more. Uh, it's, it's in style now to go to Romania. So guests are requesting a lot of our lower Danube cruises. Uh, they go from Budapest to the southern part of Hungary, so uh, the former Yugoslavia, Serbia, Croatia, today, 
uh, to Romania and the end in Bulgaria. And, the, and they go by river. And they go by river. And it's extremely interesting, this itinerary, when we look at the history, what all happened there. Mm -hmm. Amazing. But you said you start. Well, I was back to how you started the, the company. Mm -hmm. So, so I, after I graduated, um, I moved to Switzerland first. I uh, was with American Express for some time, which really formed in me uh, everything about uh, customer service. And then I moved over to California, to the United States, joined uh, the River Cruise Company that Rudy had just opened as the first president. So we met that, there. That, that was Viking? That was Viking yeah. at this time. This was in 2000, yeah. Mm -hmm. with, with the legendary Tor Hagen. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. I mean, a wonderful personality. Yeah. And, uh, and so I fell in love with the River Cruise concept and also uh, with my future husband. And then two years later, we opened up Ama Waterways uh, with the goal to really create uh, the company where quality is the number one thing. For us, it's always quality over quantity. Exactly. Mm -hmm. And then from one ship to 20. From one ship to 20, yeah, but still slow growth. I think so one to two ships per year. Next year, it will be three ships. So that's definitely... So you more. manage your growth. Uh, uh, the tour, on the other hand, is like operating one ship every m five minutes. He's, uh, he's like giving birth to ships left and right. And that's totally fine. Yeah. You know, we all have our different things that we yeah. want. Uh, but, of course, you, you need to train also your people that come on board, uh, the crew, the captains. And, and it has to be fun. And we really have fun. And our guests should have the fun. And the crew, too, because then they are really passionate about things. And that reflects on everything. You know, you mentioned some of the lower Danube cruises. Mm -hmm. I think not enough people realize how much traffic there can be, how many opportunities there can be on rivers around the world mm -hmm. that are not being utilized this way. Mm -hmm. It, of course, always depends on development of the country, the, the infrastructure. We were one of the first ones, uh, actually, after Panda, I believe, uh, that's now nine years ago, to go to the Mekong River. Now we have three ships on the Mekong River, the latest, uh, our beautiful Amadara. Uh, but we had to deal with situations. There were no docks. There were no ports. Where the captain literally had to throw um, the line, the line uh, around the tree, uh, which was a great adventure. Very safe. Uh, but, you know, for By the way, a lot of American else. riverboats still throw lines around trees. <laughs> they do. Yeah, even yeah. today. Yeah. Wow, even today. Mm -hmm. Yeah. yeah. So, so, no, there are so many different rivers all over the world. Uh, definitely. We had a ship on the Erevadi. Uh, today, nobody... Irrawaddy in, in, in Myanmar. In Myanmar as yeah. well. You know, you mentioned, you know, the lack of infrastructure when you were starting. But in a way, isn't that part? Of, isn't it also part of the beauty that there's not that much infrastructure? That you, you're not really going and building super ports along the river. You're not building uh, big hotels or super highways. That really hasn't changed at all. Absolutely. You're so, so right. It's about authenticity. Um, and, and that's also a little bit of conflict, yeah, because people expect uh, that you have a fabulous luxury product on the river, and that's, of course, also Ama Waterways. But then there comes the truth that, you know, the more you, you do it, the more ships are being built, uh, ports are also getting overcrowded. So what we want to do even more now on the Danube and the Rhine, look for different ports um, where we take our guests away from, you know, the bigger cities. Um, it's, it's By the way, I never thought I'd hear that. Because it was always smaller ports to begin with. So now you're looking for even smaller ports. We even, yeah, because there are so many beautiful villages yeah. along the Rhine, the Moselle River, the Danube. So it, it's not just Dürnstein and Melk that is really absolutely fabulous. There are little ports like Weissenkirchen or Grein. Whoa, 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 whoa stop. Which, what was that port called? Weissen Weissenkirchen? Where is that? That's uh, in the Wachau Valley on the Danube River. Wow. Actually, between Melk and Dürnstein. 
and lots of vintners, you know, small wineries. Uh, yeah, wine and food is, of course, definitely something that all guests are looking for. And they, well, you can't miss it on this trip because every every time you turn around, somebody's got a, a, a winery, everybody's, uh, and they have cheese. Wine, cheese, uh, we heard the waffles today, and in France, of course, there's, we do a beautiful uh, chocolate and red wine tasting at the Tournon Castle, so yeah, so many great things. And talking about wine, um, the interest is really high. About eight years ago, we started with our very first wine experience cruise, and now we have over 50. So, Whoa. and it's all about the fun and the storytelling when it comes to our winemakers uh, that come on board. Well, you know, I've always thought that when you take a cruise like this, you're sort of test driving your palate. You're test driving, you know, what you would like to, to buy on your own. So I'm always taking pictures of wine or cheese labels to see if I can source it back in the States because mm -hmm. you're going to find stuff here you can't find at home. But that's also the beauty, right? So you, you go to Europe because you find so many things that you don't have at home. And it's all about this, to find different things. No matter if it's the wine, the cheese, <laughs> different cities, beautiful, you know, cathedrals, vineyards, you name it. You know, when I took the first river cruise, God, it must have been 20 years ago. Uh, it was not a ship that looked like this at all. It was about half the size. Um, you know, the shower barely worked, right? The space was ridiculously small. Mm -hmm. The food was nothing to write home about. Sometimes it was nothing to even eat. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it was sausage and beers, right? I mm -hmm. mean, I mean, you've nothing had nothing against a good beer. Huh? Well, <laughs> with enough beer, I suppose you'll eat cardboard. <laughs> but, but you had to turn that around. Mm -hmm. And that was, we, we really wanted to create a product that we would enjoy ourselves. So we always listen to our guests. We put ourselves in the shoes of our customers. And that, uh, was and that wasn't just here. That was also in Asia, too. Uh, 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 all over, all over yeah. the place, right? Because we all change. Change is very healthy. Change is good. And, of course, we were also the first ones to bring bicycles on board, uh, having a more active approach to river cruising. Because what you just said, that was exactly age 80, even and yet, and then you know what? very when, passive. I'll make you a bet. I don't know this to be true. You let me know. When you brought the bicycles on board, I'm sure somebody said to you, none of your pastors are going to use them. They're too old. And it's true. In the beginning, we had one, two, or three maybe biking with us. Now today, we have 25 bikes on board. Sometimes we have to rent more from the ports because so many want to bike. And you see it with the guests. And if they, if they don't bike, they will go and hiking. About 25% of our guests today, when they have the variety of the shore excursions they choose from, they go and take the active hiking tours. And then that's one, one of the new things we have today, more wellness on board. Now we have uh, a wellness host on board on six of our ships this year. Well, across the after all that wine and cheese, you need wellness. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, the conflict is also if you dance the night away until 2 in the morning, but you want to be in the yoga class at 7 in the morning, then you need a <laughs> bit of sleep as well. So it's, again, your choice, right? <laughs> what are the plans? You have 20 ships now. Mm -hmm. How many on order? We have, so we welcome the Amalea this year. The ship is actually starting in three days here. Uh, we have three on order for next year, 2019. The beautiful Amamora for the Rhine again, the Amadoro for the Doro, and the Amamagna, or double white ship. And then uh, for 2020, we have placed currently two orders, uh, which we might utilize, maybe not. We, we will so see. these are options? These are options, but 20 will be... A good year, especially for the Danube, because Oba Amagau and the Passion Play are coming. Yeah. In terms of design and function, one thing you were able to do with this ship or with the ships that are upcoming that you never could have done 20 I would be of 
having different restaurants here on board, right? 20 years ago, we had one main dining room, that and it. that was it, right? It. Now, today, we are sitting here in our chef's table restaurant. Uh, we serve a very special tasting menu. We have our wine bars integrated in our main dining room. We can accommodate groups there, families. So it's all about the different intimate spaces for the different types of clients. Uh, we do the light uh, lunch in, in our lounge. So that gives us the opportunity. You're going the wrong way! He says we're going the wrong way! Oh, he's drunk! How do he know where we're going? Come fly with me, let's fly, let's fly away. If you can use some exotic booze, there's a bar in far Bombay. Come on and fly with me, let's fly, let's fly away. Come fly with me, let's float down to Peru. I remember the very first time I went on a river cruise, it was about 20 years ago, and let me tell you what the cuisine was. It was, guess the age of the mystery hot dog in the rotisserie. It was um, a lot of bread, a lot of um, fried food, uh, and, and it's not really an interesting menu. Um, they had steak and potatoes and more steak and potatoes. And, and because it had such a European clientele in those days, you had a lot of worsts and a lot of sausages, and it was a very heavy cruise. Well, those days are changing uh, in a big way, and one of the reasons why it's changing is my next guest, the executive chef for the Ama Christina and for Ama Waterways, uh, Robert Kellerhaus. How are you, sir? Yes, good. Welcome aboard. You heard my introduction. You remember those days. Yes, I do. What's changed? What, what finally turned it around? People live more healthy. They try to look more smart. Uh, we have to make more fresh local food from local producers. Everything is fresh, fresh, fresh. You know, when you think about the roots that go on, they're the traditional roots where commerce started. This wasn't, you know, they just didn't create the waterways. They've been always there. And you're going through all these wonderful small towns where you can always source the food that you want. You can always call ahead and say, what kind of fish did you catch today? Or, exactly. or what did you grow in the garden? Exactly. So when you're stopping in these different cities, we're not talking about huge ports. We're talking about docks. Yes. Small docks in small towns, you already know the farmers. Yes, we do know our local purchasing where we can do. We know the little shops, cheese shops, fish markets, vegetable markets where we can go to shop. After now six years in the company, I know each port where I can get Fresh fruits, fresh fish, fresh so, meat. So as an example, on the roof from Amsterdam, where are you going to get the fish? Where are you going to get the cheese? Amsterdam, here. Of course. On the Tulip Cruise, for example, Nijmegen, all Rotterdam, everywhere we can get fresh fish from the cruise from Amsterdam to Basel, every port, Speyer, Mannheim, everywhere we can get fresh fish, fruits, vegetables, everything. But it also gives you a chance to have variety with the menu. Yes, Right, yes, it's no longer just steak and potatoes. No, we do have always have healthy choice, local choices. The thing about that I that I've noticed on this, and I used to take, I, I don't normally do this. I have people on my staff are crazy foodies. I mean, they'll take pictures of, of an ice cream sandwich, but I've actually been going into the into the galley 
or into the dining room, and I'll see a wine that I've never seen before, and I'll take a picture of the label. I'll take pictures of the, of, of the labels on the cheese because that's something I really want to be able to find back in, in, in the States. Exactly, yeah. And you can do it. In the old days, you couldn't do it. Now no, you can do now it. Now you can do it, yes. I know. Also, the people are more interested about cooking with all these show cooks in the TV, Jamie Oliver. Are you trying to tell me everybody's a celebrity chef? No, Every, not everybody. Of <laughs> The people are more interested in food. Yes. Chef, to be a chef now in the new days is more, the chefs are more proud than before. Well, you I also have better equipment. Yes, it's true. Yeah. I mean, what you have in your galley now, you didn't have on the galleys on these ships 20 That's years true. ago. That's true. So what can, you can do a souffle now. You can do anything. Anything, yes. Right? Yes. What's the most complicated dish you do on this ship? <laughs> Let's say all the chefs are professionals, so we don't have actually complicated dishes anymore for professional chefs. Okay, for idiots like me. No, we? <laughs> we have souffle, for example. Yeah. It's very difficult to serve in the right time without that it's That it doesn't fall down, down, right? Falling down, or to have the right temperature for all the guests, for the meat, for example. But as professional chefs and all in the kitchen we have, it's not so difficult, let's say it is. But you now have the space to work in. Space is quite small. Yeah, we have to be very well organized. But it's but it's more efficient. More efficient. Yes. 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 Are you smoking your own fish at all? Excuse me. Do you smoke your own fish? No. No. That you don't do. No. No. Because of the safety on the on board. Right. But everything else, you're you're yes. you're you're cooking to order. Fresh everything from scratch. How we call it in the kitchen? Fresh stocks, fresh soups. Everything is fresh. Fresh. No convenience products. No processed cheese. Yes. <laughs> No Velveeta. <laughs> what's the um, the item on your menu? I always ask the, the chefs this question. What's the item that you put on your menu that you figured, you know what, everybody's going to love this and nobody ordered it? Or what's the one item you put on your menu and you figured, who's going to want this? I, I'll put it on, but and everybody wanted it. The one dish what I was thinking that everybody likes because it's braised and it's the real chicks, but it's usually is not so famous. Okay, so that didn't, work, that didn't work well. It didn't work so well. Didn't the, work so and well. the one that was the surprise that did? The Osobuco, because a lot of Americans have Italian influence, so it's really a runner, the Osobuco. Wow. Yes. So that's the surprise. That's the surprise. What's the surprise? Yes. You've been listening to Peter Greenberg Worldwide. Catch us each week as we broadcast on the new location somewhere around the world. If you like Ion Travel with Peter Greenberg, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at Wondery.com survey. Look around. You can find cars like these on AutoTrader, like that car riding your tail. Or if you're tailgating right now, all those cars doubling as kitchens and living rooms are on AutoTrader too. Are you working out and listening to this ad at the same time? Well, multitasking pro, cars like the ones in the gym parking lot are for sale on AutoTrader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on Auto Trader. Just you wait. Auto Trader. 
The Hargan women seem to have it all. From the outside looking in, we were blessed. My mom was amazing. But as detectives would soon learn, there was a lot going on inside the Hargan household. Ashley and I have been calling my mom and the house and Helen. No one's answering. 63-year-old Pamela Hargan gunned down in her own home. Her youngest daughter, Helen, lay dead upstairs. Patrol, when they arrived, assumed or thought that there might have been a murder-suicide. But for the detectives on the scene... There were things about the scene itself that were concerning to us on day one. Who would want to kill their mother and their little sister? There is no boogeyman here. It is exactly who we think it is. I'm Peter Vance Sat from 48 Hours. This is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings, wherever you get your podcasts.